we know how we feel about the project, but the data is going to tell you a story. And let's make sure that we have data to back up our hypothesis of why something may have worked or may not have worked. And then once you have the data, then you can go into sort of the, the qualitative feedback. This didn't work because of X. This didn't work because of Y. We like to capture it in a, a PowerPoint that we circulate with our executive team and then also our, our marketing team as well. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am welcoming Lindsay Boyajan-Hagen to the show. Lindsay, I would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your work to the audience. Of course. Well, thanks for having me here today. Um, I'm Lindsay Boyajan-Hagen. I'm the VP of Marketing at Conductor. Um, for those that, of you that don't know Conductor, um, it is a B2B software um, designed for um, marketers to help um, increase their SEO and content marketing presence so they can score higher uh, rankings on Google. I was going to say, everybody wants to do that, right? <laughs> Yeah, especially we saw during COVID, um, especially as marketing budgets sort of started to change and tighten and traditional channels like events got a little tighter and weren't working um, quite as well as we thought since we all had to go virtual. Um, we saw a lot of folks really prioritizing that their search presence. It's it's so interesting how much of all of our world is now driven by, you know, wanting to be one of those 10 links that comes up first. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. And I think if you look at some of the stats, the the stats, the drop off between being even the top two versus you know, on the second page, the drop off is crazy. Um, I think the top two links get like 93% of clicks or something like that. Um, so it's really, really important for businesses today. Does that demonstrate how lazy people are or just how special Google is? You know, I, I, like jury's still out on that. So. Exactly. You, you hope that the Google has got Google is serving up the best content and uh, marketers are putting great content. And I think we as marketers have gotten a lot better in terms of creating content that's valuable. Um, if you look back 10, 15 years, it was all SEO, black uh, hat techniques and clickbaity things, um, really all about sort of trying to trick Google's algorithm. And today you can't trick Google's algorithm. Uh, you have to you have to create valuable content um, for to rank on the rank high on the SERP. So hopefully Folks are getting getting valuable content in those one or two spots. This is probably interesting for you having to run marketing using and uh, for a tool against which the SEO is brutal. I mean, like talk about trying to score for for something. So I guess you have to dog food that and uh, you have the tool to to get it done. But that must be a really interesting sort of recursive thing for you to have to deal with because you've got some of the hardest terms to rank for, for the tool that is helping people rank for terms. Yeah. It's a fun, it's a fun challenge. And I think it's also fun marketing to marketers. Um, so you, so you sort of know your audience because you are your audience in a lot of ways. Um, but with that, you also make assumptions about your audience. So you do have to keep yourself honest. Um, 
I'm not an SEO by trade. And so, uh, although a marketer by trade, so um, I may feel like I know a lot about SEOs, but they have their own challenges and problems and things that, that I don't know. So you got to sort of keep yourself honest, but it, it's definitely a, a fun and interesting um, space to be in for sure. And I know like I talk to a lot of marketing leaders. I mean, the, the thing that's astounding now I live, you know, kind of on bottom of funnel. So I'm like, you know, sales guy, like eventually an enterprise lead through the grand work of all of you marketers, you know, gets to my call on a, on a one-to-one basis, but you know, I'm, have to be educated in marketing land. And, you know, the thing that I'm, I'm just continually shocked by is the, the MarTech landscape is just absolutely ridiculously crowded in any thing that I'm trying to solve for. It's like a hundred possible tools that integrate one way or another with everything else. And um, what, when you're in that cloud of thousands and thousands of tools, you know, how do you deal with marketing on differentiation when you know i mean it's just like so much noise yeah i think there's a few different trends that are really at that we're seeing that are really advantageous for a technology like ours we're really focused on enterprise technology and so we're very different than some of the small tools in our space um that may be good for uh a 10 20 person company and a small agency that's just getting started um, so the the benefit of a marketer is you're not really competing against those folks. You're really competing in this really specific enterprise space. Um, and a lot of the things that we see when you're thinking about enterprise technology is that folks don't want silos, because they, especially silos between their tools, because like you said, they have all these tools. They may have a couple big platforms. They may have a couple smaller tools that they just really like for point solutions. But ultimately, all of that has to connect. And when it doesn't connect, that's when you sort of run into trouble and it a lot of that requires then a lot of manual work, you're downloading spreadsheets, you're uploading them back into some other reporting studio. And so what we really focus on as a business that conductor um, is creating a technology that is accessible for all users. So whether you're a, a novice marketer or a, a sophisticated marketer, we want to make sure that we have a technology that um, uh, applies to you and is easily user friendly for you. But also we want to make sure that we're, we're connecting to the other technologies that you're using to make your workflow simpler. I know as a marketer, I use a ton of different tools and, and when they connect and I can pull things from A to B, it makes it a lot easier. Um, and so I can spend a lot of less time reporting and a lot more time uncovering insights and actually taking action on those insights. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed from your resume, you have been or maybe continue to be deeply involved in, in the product marketing subset of marketing that to me as a salesperson has always been a, a confusing space of, you know, I think we call some of that stuff sales enablement, but uh, product marketers like sort of grew up out of nowhere in our uh, zeitgeist. And we're sort of just like, we're not sure what that is, but uh, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I ran the product marketing meetup group out of New York um, mm -hmm. before the, before COVID. And yeah. so you would get this group of like 30 product marketers from all different types of companies and they all do different things. Um, yeah. And it was pretty wild when you started talking to them, because if you're a B2C and B2B, you're doing totally different things. If you're at um, a software company versus a healthcare company, you're doing totally different things. Um, and it's super interesting. Uh, the sort of the differences of what product marketing means at every company. Um, it's really interesting. And why did that have to get, or have to get so like sort of drawn out of the broader marketing area? Like it just the sort of 
over the last, I don't know, five years, it's just like everybody's a product marketer. And it's always confusing to us that are not in the, the realm. It's like, well, how's that different than like, why, what's the rest of marketing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I find product marketing, um, I think I'm biased just because I've spent um, a good part of my career in product marketing. But the product marketers are a lot of the strategic work sits in product marketing and a lot of the messaging and positioning and all of that really important and foundational work comes out of product marketing because they are this, they're, they're a nexus. They're a nexus between product, sales, CS, marketing. Um, and so they have more context around the business or their product line, depending on the size of the company or their, or their feature set than a lot of other folks, maybe even sometimes more than the PM team themselves because they're so connected to the field. Um, so there is such a strategic function um, in the business. And I think that's why you're seeing more and more folks realize oh, I do have a gap. And I, that is I, what I think product marketing fills. And you're sort of seeing folks sort of see the light there. I can't just have a go-to-market and a brand function anymore or demand and brand. There's a missing piece there and that's product marketing. And um, I have a phenomenal product marketing team at Conductor and it's an area we've we've consciously invested in here. And so that, that sits parallel to then your go-to-market and your brand and then you got product. So it's like, it's kind of like more specific for each line or actual available thing, which I guess I'm guessing from brand and, you know, go to work, you wouldn't be able to dig into the detail as much then at those, those sort of levels. So it's getting a little bit more refined, I guess, when you get the product done. Yeah. And product is helping def um, influence your demand team and they're helping fuel. They're the fuel behind a lot of your demand gen messaging and campaigns and, and they're the ones fueling, for instance, the sales team with sales enablement and comp intel um, and all that that good stuff to um, accelerate the the pipeline. Um, so they're, it's a great function and it's a great partnership between the other functions. Um, on my team, we have a brand team, a demand gen team, and a product team. And it's a really nice sort of relationship between all three of them. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for the education there. That's why we're all here. So, <laughs> so let's talk about... Um... You know, your your journey, I love to do, you know, just sort of high level uh, lessons learned, you know, cool, you're you're now the leader of marketing, you know, at a pretty significant software company. So how did that happen? And uh, what were the, the major milestones and, you know, lessons learned along that way? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I started my career actually starting my own company. So I'm a bit of an entrepreneur at heart. Um, so started my own company while I was still an undergrad. Um, and that was a really exciting journey. I mean, the tech scene still felt very new. Not every, uh, company, not every university had an accelerator yet. Um, I was sort of part of the first accelerator class at Cornell, uh, at Cornell. So it was sort of exciting and you felt like you're really sort of pioneering something, not only just as a, a leader of a starting your own company, but also sort of start seeing to start startup culture, pick up more in universities, um, especially on the East Coast. Um, so that was a pretty exciting journey. Um, and there's a lot of learnings as an entrepreneur. Um, you learn, you're sort of wearing 10,000 hats. Of you're, the, you're running finance, you're running marketing, you're running sales, you're doing HR, you're hiring, um, you're doing investor relations and, and all that stuff. And so you get a really broad, but also great education of, of a business. Um, and then from there, um, I started working with a venture capital firm in uh, New York and got connected with some of their portfolio companies 
um, I was going to do a master's in Paris and got connected with, actually with one of the companies they were looking at out of, um, out of Paris. So I was really fortunate. Yeah. So I got to really get kind of connected into the Paris tech scene, which is pretty, pretty neat coming from New York and sort of seeing some of the differences, um, and really getting to spend, spend time with folks over there. And, um, I found a really cool company called augment at the time they were doing AR technology, augmented reality technology. Um, and this was early, so no one, Apple, no one was in AR yet. Um, and it was a pretty neat technology. It was all, um, computer and phone based. And, um, it was a really exciting time to be sort of at the forefront of this company. They had just raised money from Salesforce. Um, and I was their first marketing hire, their first American. My French wasn't very good. So that was fun. Um, but it was a really, really interesting time and it was all B2B. So it wasn't AR for, um, consumer purposes. It was for helping sales for, uh, different sales forces. Um, when you're in the field, um, can I see what that, uh, end cap looks like and show it to the store owner can for architects when they're out in the field. So that was a really, um, interesting experience. And being in a space like that was really exciting and really fun. Um, and sort of being at the cutting edge of technology in a lot of ways. Um, and then from there went to spend a, a few years there and then actually helped them open their New York office. So they were expanding rapidly. Um, we came back to New York, we were in a, we work here in New York for a while, um, and had continued the journey of, um, expanding sales and marketing in the U S. Um, and then from there, um, I came across conductor where I've been for the last five years and change, um, and started in their product marketing org and um, have since um, expanded the scope of my role to run the entire marketing org at Conductor um, across, as I mentioned, demand, brand, and um, product marketing. So along that way, you must have picked up, you know, bigger and bigger teams, obviously. And then you would have to, you know, just pick up the different skills of juggling and managing you know different types of people different areas of the business how do you how do you do the time management sort of focus management thing because uh, you know as you move up with more people you can't do as much of the day-to-day -day actual work which means you need to delegate and you need to manage and i think that's one of the most challenging things for anybody to learn in their career yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a big challenge and I don't think anyone's good at it and you sort of always ebb and flow with how much you're micromanaging versus how much you can pull back, but I think the key is at least for me is always it starts with that hire that hiring and making sure you're hiring to a certain standard. Um and looking for the skills that you want on a team. Um having folks on your team that you feel like you can really trust, have the skill sets that you don't have. Um that's what you want. You want, you don't want the folks, the folks on the team that are the exact same as you. You want the folks you can go to because they're going to bring a different perspective. They can work on bigger and different types of projects. Um, and you trust them while you're working on sort of other things and managing and thinking of working on the business that they can, you can really trust them to work in the business and in their departments, um, to get things done. Um, but it is, it isn't easy and it's, but if you have really great folks on your team, it does make it a lot easier to be able to take a step back and feel like, you don't have to be in everything. Yeah, I've been reading articles about, you know, studies around hiring because now it's, you know, super difficult to hire folks and everybody's under high demand and it's sort of a seller's market from the employee side. And 
the upshot seems to be that you know absolutely nobody really understands how to do this and all the all the books about hiring or the methods and you know how do you find the a plus people and you know none of it ends up playing out over the long term that actually somebody can predict who's going to be great or not great so what do you what do you do to help you know filter people out because there must be some method you know of success out there yeah, there's a few things you look for. And I think from my perspective, one is just hustle. And, and that sounds really sort of cliche in a lot of ways. But you do want someone that really feels like they want to be there. They're going, they're hungry to work hard. They um, want to see the business succeed. Um, because that means that they're going to really care when they get into the role. Um, and they even if there are ups and downs, and uh, even in bad times, they'll still feel connected to the business in a lot of ways. Um, because they they really care. Um, and so that's sort of the first piece is that uh, you sort of want that that person that's a hard worker and really going to put in the time. Um, and then you want someone, uh, humility is something I value tremendously. So you want that hard worker, but also someone that's really humble, um, no ego, they're going to uh, be open to feedback and coaching. And it depends on the environment of the company, our company, a conductor is really um, feedback oriented, everyone's very transparent and open. So you want folks around you that are going to be open to that, open to coaching, uh, because then even let's say they're, maybe they're not a great fit when you hire them. If they're open to coaching and feedback, they can get better. And if they care about the business, they'll really want to get better. And so you want folks that have that mentality um, over time. Um, but there, there's no perfect, um, I, I agree with you, hiring methodology. Um, but at the end of the day, you also just, you do want to hire people that um, are kind, are, you just want to hire people through just genuine qualities. You spend so much time with people around you. Um, I have folks on my team, we've all been on the team together for now, four or five years on marketing. And it just, you genuinely, the folks on the team, I genuinely want to spend time with, I genuinely want to succeed with them. And that goes a long way um, in terms of coming to work every day and getting excited um, and making sure someone's a, a fit long term. Yeah, absolutely. One of my so one of my pet topics lately is how companies and management teams deal with mistakes and quality and flaws and you know sort of making things better out of of failures. And so I I'm querying my guests about how do you deal with a culture of making mistakes being okay and learning from it. And, you know, what are the different methods of that, you know, to encourage risk-taking within bounds and, and things like that? Yeah, I think it does go back to the sort of, as I mentioned, the transparency and the feedback culture, because if you're letting folks make mistakes, but you're not giving them feedback and they're not getting the two-way street they're, they're sort of just making mistakes and failing over and over and then you as a manager or as a team are getting really frustrated you're like why is um uh, my new my new employee like doing all this crazy stuff we didn't talk about that um and you sort of it starts to fester but if it can be an open dialogue where you're like hey jen like that was a really good idea it didn't go what well. let's retro that let's talk have an open dialogue about maybe why it didn't work and you made that mistake and how we're going to improve then all of a sudden you can really have a dialogue about it and it becomes a really healthy conversation. Um, and you can start to foster a culture of openness and um, transparency, and then ultimately uh, a place where it is safe to make mistakes. And how do you capture those learnings? So you use retro, that's an agile word. So it means you probably, 
you know, want to capture the learnings and expose them to everybody else, you can say, okay, good, you know, Jen or whoever, you know, here we learned a thing by, um, by screwing this up together and we want the institutional knowledge of that. How do you handle that? Yeah, and I'll give you a good example. We just had our annual flagship event, um, C3. It's our um, in-person event in New York. It was the first time back after being there for two years. Um, so, it, and it went really well, but there were mistakes along the way, um, just as with any live event or in-person event, that's how they go. Um, and so what we did is we pulled all the data in. My team put together, looked at first the data. Let's look at that. Let's see if there's a story there. What's that telling us? Because I think we know how we know how we feel about the project, um, but the data is going to tell you a story. And let's make sure that we have data to back up our hypothesis of why something may have worked or may not have worked. And then once you have the data, then you can go into sort of the, the qualitative feedback. This didn't work because of X. This didn't work because of Y. And you can capture that. We like to capture it in a, a PowerPoint that we circulate um, with our executive team um, and then also our, our marketing team as well. Or, or sort of the relevant stakeholders. But then you have an artifact that's documented. It can go in the folder. And then next year, when if stakeholders turn over, you have it have the artifact documented um, and you have it filed away in the right place for, for, for uh, future, future generations of folks. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it, future generations, because it's so easy to just move on and assume that, you know, someone's going to be around that remembers the thing that we screwed up last year. <laughs> You know, but but unless you give that detail and context along, you know, any of the business decisions that were made, you can get yourself into that loop of, you know, that just looks like it was a dumb thing, but we don't know why we made that decision. You know, like ever we assume that all of us made good decisions with the best data that we had at the time. But it's easy to look back to the past and this would probably be, you know, through your product lens, you would you would see that, you know, it's easy to look back and you can always hear like developers or, you know, sort of people involved in, in product development saying things like, this is a terrible implementation or, you know, just, we need to start this over. I don't know why somebody did that. And, but you do know, like, if you're thoughtful about it as a leader that, you know, whatever decision was made was made for a reason. And I hope that we capture those reasons so that, when we see the reason again, we don't make the same bad choice. <laughs> exactly, and again, things change, and uh, you'll have probably one. It's good to have more information, and two, as circumstances changing, uh, maybe the decision next year it would make a lot of sense to do that thing again. But let's know why we made the decision this year, and why we think it would be uh, beneficial to to make that same decision. Um, but totally agree on that. Yeah, and. and you know, another thing I learned coming out of the product and tech area into, in my case, sales or, you know, revenue leadership is, you know, there's not just technical debt. There's also like organizational debt. And the reason we built a process or a thing maybe exists now or maybe doesn't anymore. And, you know, is that is that a good choice now? Um, why do we even do this particular thing? And can anyone remember... <laughs> Like, did we write this down and why did we do it that way? And the more you have a larger organization, the more stuff just gets, you know, kind of lost. And knowledge management is a huge, huge issue now. Yeah. And our, our CEO, Seth Bismarck, always has a, always sort of says, uh, the worst reason to do something is because we've always done, to say, we've always done it that way. Um, and I think that really holds the organization, um, keeps us all honest of like, 
hey, we don't have to do things that way. And especially in a high growth company, it doesn't make sense if you're growing really quickly to do things how you did them two years ago in a lot of ways. Uh, because things have changed, the team changed, the market's changed so quickly over the last two years. So you have to stay agile. Um, and that is where I think, like you said, there's there's processes that are great and they keep folks um, on the right path. But sometimes there's processes that do get outdated and you have to have, we have a really great operations team and they they sort of keep us honest as, a, as an organization of, hey, does this process make sense? Are people actually using and following this? If not, should we change it? Should we remove it? Is it causing unneeded burden for the sales organization? Because they have to fill in this archaic field from five years ago. Um, but all of that hygiene is so important across the business. Um, and it, it, like you said, it, it creates debt in ways that you don't even realize, um, especially when you're trying to move quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So you speak at things, you're, you're uh, a thought leader, if you will. You know, that's why we invited you on and and i like to ask folks you know sort of put on your your futurist hat is what i call it and you know but look at like just the next couple of years and what do you see that should be on the radar for you know b2b leaders and that maybe things that they're not thinking about so i like to stack the deck for everybody's you know sort of back of the mind thought powerpoint for like this stuff is going to matter and you should have it on your radar yeah, my, I was just at, actually, speaking of speaking, I was just speaking at and hosted a roundtable at um, Reuters CMO event out in San Diego a week and a half or two weeks ago. Um, and we had some really great conversations with the CFOs in the room um, around things that are sort of keeping them up at night or things that are on top of mind for them. And I think one of the biggest things that came up was a big conversation around data and especially the use of first-party data, I think as uh, B2B leaders and especially as B2B marketers, um, we really have to be cog conscious of what's happening with third-party data and the changes that are going to happen with privacy and Google's changes going cookie-less. Um, that data is going to be more and more, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but more and more dangerous for us to use as marketers, less and less trustworthy for us to act, use. Um, and so we have to really think about, okay, so if we, we can't rely on third-party data the way we used to, which has been fueling all of our, our, a big chunk of our marketing. How are we going to change um, and what are we going to use and how are we going to use first-party data? Um, and I think there's so many brands, which what we talked about is a lot of these, we have, as brands, we have so much first-party data on our customers. Um, we know how they're using our products. We know how they're engaging with our marketing content. And a lot of, a lot of us aren't, aren't using it in the, to its fullest extent or capacity. So there was a lot of conversation about how can we better connect, break down silos between data, and then how can we use that data, and especially our first party data, because that data we know is uh, uh, safe for us to use, for lack of a better word, um, and will be there for us in the future as thing, privacy and regulation changes um, occur. And so that was really interesting. And I think I, I wanna, I'm thinking a lot about sort of one of, I'm writing an article right now around owned media and this resurgence of owned media um, and how it's fueling sort of all your other channels, but it is sort of the foundation for, for everything. And um, especially as we see the economy changing and budgets are maybe impacted there, you sort of need to think about what as a marketing leader, um, especially in B2B, what are you going to do in the next year, 18 months, 24 months to make sure that you um, are sort of future proofed. 
from talk, a yeah talk about that owned media thing because that that's really interesting I and mean, we experienced that a lot on the b2b podcast side so i'm interested to hear from the you know sort of the cmo perspective what what are the own channels that are even worth looking at yeah i mean the the biggest one is your web presence and your website meaning your website uh your blog your learning center whatever you may call it but that's your i mean your your website today is your is your shampoo bottle of uh, when CPGs were running the world in terms of when you go to the store, th that's where folks are shopping. They're going on Google, they're clicking and they're landing on your site. And if it's, you don't have the content that they want, if you don't have the user experience that they want, they're going to bounce. And every time you um, don't capture that customer, they're going somewhere else to get information and they're going somewhere else to possibly convert um, or your competitor is getting the brand recognition and you're not. Um, so your website's your, your sort of your first and probably the biggest chunk of your own media. But like you said, there's um, your podcasts, your videos, your social media, your email newsletter, all of these things that you control. And they, they are the foundation for your paid media. I mean, when you put, put your display, when you put a display ad up, what's behind that? Oh, it's a link to our podcast or it's the landing page for our podcast. It's the landing page for um, this new video we produce. And so all of that owned media is not only super valuable on its own. And um, if it's, optimized and it's discoverable will give you a lot of long-term benefits in terms of discoverability online organically. It will also be sort of the foundation of all your paid media online as well. Right. Understood. Yeah. I, I have that conversation a lot. I know particularly on the podcast side and we've been looking at it and just kind of going, you know, it's interesting the pressure that is put on now again on that, you know, sort of social media side and that third-party data you know, there, there aren't a lot of like purely owned channels. Like even if you have video and you rely on YouTube or Facebook or, you know, whatever it is like podcasts and podcasts are really following in the footsteps of what blogging was, you know, 10, 10 years ago. And then particularly interesting on the SEO side, because now we're seeing, you know, sort of a, a Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon duke it out on, Hey, who's going to figure out audio-based search first because it's going to start to surface all that stuff in search results in the same way that video started to be really important and Google totally dominated. I think Spotify doesn't want to let that happen again. So um, it's really interesting. So, you know, I love, I love that you brought that up. Lindsay, thank you. Fantastic insights. Really cool to have you on, love to know if folks in the audience are resonating, want to read more of your stuff. What's the best channels to, you know, get a hold of you and follow you? Yeah, the best is to head to my um, LinkedIn. Um, it's slash Lindsay Boyajan. Um, so you can find me there. That's where I share um, a lot of my articles, sort of where I'm, I'm speaking and um, always happy to connect to folks. So it did resonate. It just dropped me a note. Um, but no, it was great, great being on here. And it was, it was fun chatting with you today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Awesome. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.